Welcome to If It Ain't Baroque podcast, your friendly history special. We are your hosts, Gemma. Hi. And Natalie. On this episode of If It Ain't Baroque podcast, we're talking to Leia Redmond Chang and her new book, Young Queens, Three Renaissance Women and the Price of Power. So follow the stories of Catherine de' Medici, Elizabeth de Valois and Mary Queen of Scots. Hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, welcome. Hi. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for agreeing. Oh, my pleasure. I read that you went really deep in the rabbit hole, even buying rare books when you were researching this. How hard was it when you were researching during COVID? Uh, It was hard, really hard for a couple of reasons. One was that I I was in the house with my family. (laughs) 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 I have have three children. So, you know, there was that part of it, which everyone shares, right? We all had our, we all had our challenges. But then, you know, I was locked out of libraries, as was everyone else, and archives. And, you know, some people do all of their research first, Mm -hmm. and then write. I've, I've never been like that. I, I think I just get well, it, it, it's probably not necessarily the best strategy, but I just get a little bit um, antsy to start writing. <laughs> I just want to start to lay the, the the story on the page, I guess. So inevitably, you know, I, I would I would come to spots where I realize, oh, you know, I have to fill this out. So it is hard to look at a lot of this stuff online, as you know, right? Just uh, there, it is just so hard on your eyes. And and because I was, you know, trained going to rare book libraries and archives, I, I'm just I'm still very much a book person. I do my research online if I have to, but I'm, I'm still a book person, but I did, that wasn't an option. So at some point, I realized that I needed something from a, a Spanish edition, a Spanish book on Elizabeth de Valois. And I had used this book. It's actually a series of volumes. I had used several times in the UK and a bit in the States as well. I needed it and I didn't have it and it wasn't online. What was it? What am I going to do? So I hunted around online and I found it on eBay. <laughs> it was coming from Spain and I thought, oh, do I really want to pay this? And finally I felt I had no choice. So I got the book, it came, and I had originally thought it was only three volumes. But when I opened the box, there were five volumes. And I thought, well, that's strange. What are what are these fourth and fifth volumes? And when I looked, it was all primary texts. And goodness, I had never seen this fourth and fifth volume before. I, I think that just, you know, um, in the libraries where I had used it, they had only had the first three volumes or for whatever reason, I had never seen this fourth and fifth volume. So I was completely stunned by you know, this trove of primary texts. And in a way, it was a bit of a silver lining. It was it was kind of a, you know, sort of a, a little bit of felicitousness coming out of the pandemic, because had it not been for the pandemic, I never would have seen these volumes. And there were a number of texts in there that I did end up using. So it was hard during the pandemic, but it also led to some some nice finds. Yeah, that's am- that is absolutely amazing. That was just that's everybody's dream when they're researching, isn't it, to find something that's not well known or something. That's yes, or just not as accessible. And it it, it made me realize too, you know, how sometimes we should slow down in our research because mm-hmm. had I been a little bit more careful, I would have discovered that there were these fourth and fifth volumes while I was in the library. <laughs> Even if they didn't have it, if I had done my research, I guess I would have I've learned that they were there. So maybe so maybe we should all just slow down, right? Yeah. There's something to be said for slow scholarship and slow writing. Yeah, definitely. 
So starting with Catherine, it really struck me how I'm a big fan of Catherine. But me too. You always read <laughs> the end of us life, don't you? Fangirling about her all the time. Literally. Yeah, I am a fangirl. <laughs> what I loved about your book, though, it showed how loyal she was to the nuns in her life, her family and friends, how fun-loving she was, the, the prank that she pay, uh, played on Versari. Oh, I love that story. How just do you think her reputation as a serpent queen is? Oh, I don't think it's just. I don't think it's just. So... I've thought a lot about about this, and I and I think I will never stop thinking about this. Not just for mm-hmm. Catherine, but for a lot of women in particular, um, since we are talking about women's history, about the way in which historical women, but particularly women in power, get kind of flattened and and made sort of one dimensional. You have to ask why that is. On the one hand, I think that I think our brains must just be wired for simplification, right? Like when we're trying to store a lot of information. It's easier if we can just simplify. Certainly, we've had a lot of help because, you know, from Catherine's reign and then well into, you know, the the centuries that followed, there was this kind of chiseling down to this nefarious reputation and sort of casting off all the aspects of her character that might, you know, complicate or enrich, you know, that portrait of Catherine. And there were a lot of political reasons why that negative portrait of Catherine was developed. But of course, that's what remains in the archive. And that's what we build our research on. But I I think the other side of it is that I recently was reading something where someone spoke about or wrote about the ways in which women in power often are punished for being in power. And that punishment can appear in in many ways. And, And one way, I think, is through this question of legacy, right? Like how is a woman like Catherine who was so powerful and in a very unconventional way right? Sort of behind the throne and for decade after decade, like she, she just doesn't go away. You know, she just keeps on going on. How, how do we punish her? Well, I guess, you know, society has continued to punish her through this, this evil reputation that she has acquired over, over hundreds of years. And one part of it, I, I think in some ways also she's helped feed certain notions of the evil queen that have become almost a stock character in, you know, fairy tales or folk tales or just our, our notions of story. So, of course, as soon as we see any aspect of Catherine as evil queen, we say, aha, yes, of course, I understand because I've been hearing about evil queens like her ever since I was a child. Yeah, Is it to do with the kind of her dressing herself in black as well, I imagine? Because I, yeah, yeah, I, I think to so. I mean, I think that's sort of a modern misinterpretation of those clothes, right? I think that her dressing in black was supposed to actually convey the opposite. You know, that she was virtuous and that she's loyal um, to France. She's a loyal widow. She's a loyal mother. She's all business, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and no play. And it was also, I think, I suspect it was a way of establishing a link to the court of Francis the first because. Black was a very popular color in the court of Francis I. And by dressing in black, she's she's creating this kind of visual link to this seemingly stable court, right? Which everyone by mid-century is, is, is definitely a little nostalgic for. But in, in subsequent centuries, yes, there's something so severe and sober and also very identifiable um, about the black outfit, and it in our in our sort of lexicon, Western lexicon, it often attaches itself with the notion of evil. 
So perhaps that's another way in which, you know, she's she's it's acquired quite, this reputation. It's quite interesting about talking about Black because I always think she's very like Queen Victoria and that she was a widow quite a lot a lot of the years of her life. She the two of them had this really passionate love for their husband that wasn't exactly reciprocated. They had this yes. really immense love for their children. They were very much in their children's lives and they wore the black. But Queen Victoria doesn't have that reputation that Catherine has. Okay, so yes. And, and I think there are so many reasons behind this. First of all, things did not go well under Catherine's reign, as you know. <laughs> you have the wars of religion. And though she tried, she tried so hard and in many ways did succeed to try, you know, to kind of quell the violence. Certain things happened during her reign that, you know, left a mark, uh, the most notorious of which is the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Mm-hmm in which thousands of Protestants are killed, well, you you don't really recover from that. So there is this kind of um, long memory of these atrocious, these atrocities that happened while she was in charge. The other thing that happens is that the Valois die out, the dynasty dies out. And so the Bourbons take over. And every dynasty is interested in separating themselves from the previous dynasty, right? You know, I think the Bourbons kind of encouraged a negative view of Catherine because it was a way of Mm. distancing themselves from the previous dynasty. And then you have England, right? So you've got Protestant England and you've got Catholic France. And in the long view of history, the English kind of win, (laughs) right? And so, you know, their view of history and who's the good guy and who's the bad guy Mm. is going to... um, is perhaps going to dominate or win out. And Queen Victoria, of course, as a British queen, is going to, you know, probably profited from, yeah. you know, the empire, right? The success of the empire, the British empire. Yeah, yeah definitely. Catherine struggled in her early marriage with producing children. Just how important was that for all of the queens talked about in the book? There are different kinds of queens in this book. There are queen consorts. Catherine is a queen consort. Actually, all three of them are queen consorts at one point. There's, you know, queen regnants, like a sovereign queen, like uh, Mary, Queen of Scots. And then also Catherine has this more unique position as a powerful queen mother. But even though there are these differences in the queens, for all queens, whether they're sovereign or consort, you know, their first duty, their number one job is to have the children. And... Whether they could or could not have children for all three queens had huge, you know, played a huge role in their lives and in the success of their reigns. So Catherine struggles for 10 years to get pregnant. And at at one point, she was almost sent back to Italy. I mean, she got very, very close. And at least according to witnesses at the time, she sort of saves herself by, you know, pleading with her father-in-law, Francis I, to take pity on her and actually offering to go. And, and he does. He does, you know, feel bad for her. And so says, no, you'll stay. But I do think that that struggle that she had to have children really stayed with her. I wonder sometimes if some of the love, the obvious fierce love that she had for her children came from the fact that she she struggled for so long to even have them, right? And they were so important to her own security and safety at the French court. And her daughter, Elizabeth de Valois, uh, struggles in the same way. She's also barren for many, many years, not quite as long as Catherine. Catherine, it was 10 years. Elizabeth um, didn't quite get to that, to that mark, but it was a good six or seven years that she was barren. And 
for her, it's again, it's about security at the Spanish court, whether or not she gets to stay as Philip II's wife and consort. But there's another layer too, because by the time Elizabeth de Valois becomes queen consort of Spain, there is a very fragile political alliance between France and Spain that Elizabeth is supposed to nourish. It's actually vitally important to France politically that Elizabeth be an important political player in Spain. So the fact that she struggled having children also had huge uh, political implications because if Elizabeth couldn't get pregnant and bear the heir, there was a good possibility that she was going to be repudiated and the entire alliance between France and Spain could break down. And with Mary Queen of Scots, finally, it's it's all a little different, actually. (laughs) She does have a child, and it's not clear that she really struggled from infertility. She does not have a child with Francis II, her husband, who was the King of France, as you know. She does have a child uh, with Darnley, a son. So in many ways, you know, it's sort of the prized possession. She does her job. She does her duty for the realm. But I often wonder if if, uh, Mary had had a baby from that first marriage, if her life would have gone very differently than, right? Because that child, especially if that child had been a boy, would have tied her to France in a different way. If that child had been a boy, that that child could well have lived and become, you know, the, the next king of France or king of France. And so I think that her life would have, you know, completely would have looked very, very different. So even though she succeeds relatively easily compared to the other two, the fact that that one marriage was infertile does have political consequences and personal consequences for her too. Yeah, definitely. I wonder if she would have um, still went back to Scotland if she had had a child. Yeah, maybe not. I feel feel like Mary was trying to avoid going back to Scotland, at least for a little while. (laughs) You never know. That's the thing, right? Like one change doesn't necessarily dictate what was going to happen five or 10 years later. But but it makes you wonder. Yeah, definitely. It's the weather. She probably didn't want to go because of the weather. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) I love Scotland, but France kind of wins. It definitely has better weather. French kings are notorious now as having mistresses of... But when Catherine married Henry, would this have been expected? Would she have had expected like a Diane? De Poitiers? Mm. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) You know, how could she not have? I feel like they all had mistresses. You know, uh, Francis definitely had mistresses, so much so that he made them official, right? Mm. They had an official, the maîtresse en titre. It's like a... It's difficult to translate into English, but it's it's sort of a title for the official mistress of, of the king. And she was there. She was visible. Everyone knew that she was politically important. Um, in fact, it was a job, wanted, kind of, wasn't it? It was a job, a job. right. And, yeah. and yes. And, and when people wanted to get on Francis I's good side or, you know, get closer to him in some capacity, they would go to the mistress, you know. You would go to the wife, the queen, or possibly to the mistress. So, you know, when Catherine arrives in France, Diane de Poitiers is already on the scene. But, you know, Catherine is very young, as is Henry. They're both 14. And you can imagine, like any 14-year-old, especially in a completely new place with a relatively new language and uh, just a lot of newness, that you wouldn't necessarily understand what you were seeing. And it's not clear that Diane de Poitiers really was Henry's mistress when Catherine first arrived. She clearly is this very maternal figure, 
very much um, someone he respects and looks up to and even kind of needs. There, there is definitely a neediness um, that Henry feels for Diane de Poitiers, but it's not clear that they had a sexual relationship. That becomes clear later once Henry becomes the heir to the throne. You know, but, but it's actually hard to, to kind of know, to be in Catherine's head at that age. When she is that age, when she's new to France, she's still a little bit liminal. You know, she's the wife of the of the second son, mm-hmm. not even the heir. So documentation about her is a little bit sparse. And we only kind of know from many things that were said after the fact. And then you never know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, how how we've arrived at those opinions or those those accounts. How different was France from Italy? Would she have been prepared? Would it have been similar? From Italy, from France Mm -hmm. and uh, from Italy. In some ways, yes. And in some ways, no. So she probably was not prepared for the size of the court. You know, she is a Medici, but they're not royal. It's, you know, it's incredibly wealthy and it's incredibly opulent. But I'm not sure that she was prepared for the type of court that is the first was running (laughs) during his reign. I'm talking about him like he's a CEO, but (laughs) (laughs) she wouldn't have been prepared for for his court. One thing that was a kind of seamless transition would have been religion. You know, she was raised Catholic and France at the time is very Catholic. There were definitely differences between what French Catholicism looked like versus, you know, Italian Catholicism, Mm -hmm. but it would have been relatively seamless for her. And actually, you know, that is one way to, to think about Europe at the time. We're often used to thinking in terms of nation states. I mean, we're still like coming out of the 19th and 20th centuries. So we think of these separate uh, kingdoms, almost like separate nation states. But in some ways, you can talk about Catholic Europe, right? And sort of dynastic Europe as being one thing with a lot more similarities between the noble or royal courts than between, say, the royal court of France and the peasantry of France, right? So someone coming from, let's say, another royal court, whether it's Spain or, you know, a court in Italy would have found far more, been far more familiar and comfortable in a court in the court of France than, you know, even a few miles further. Yeah, there's a lot of similarity between mm-hmm. uh, between the courts. So in that sense, you know, it would have been comfortable for her. The other thing is that in France, it was pretty in vogue to be Italian. Uh, certainly when she got there, France mm-hmm. is the first really liked Italians. He considered the Italians to be the arbiters of taste. He often wrote away for Italian products. He also had his eyes on Italy. You know, he wanted to conquer certain parts of Italy. And so he's very interested in Italian things. And so when Catherine got there, she fairly quickly gets into Francis's good graces. He obviously liked her. I think he liked her personally, but there was probably something that he liked about her Italian qualities too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's only when there's tension at court that you start to see these insults leveled at her based on her Italianness. Yeah, because I think that's that's one of the problems with diplomatic marriages back then. It's great when it's bringing two nations together in friendship with treaties, but when the one goes against the other, you have this queen who is now the enemy, and that must have been really hard. How did the women in the book deal with things like that? Well, it is really hard because it's also, again, it, it's almost a simplification of the reality. Mm-hmm. Because of the nature of these you know, dynastic and and aristocratic marriages across borders, 
a lot of the women come from different backgrounds, right? Like they have one parent who's from one kingdom and another parent who's from another kingdom. So they're always a little bit hybrid. And on on some level, that actually can be a strength. That's why they're the peacemakers, you know, and they can make the alliances. But on the other hand, like you said, it does become kind of a vulnerability. And and that does happen to Catherine. It actually happened, it might have happened to Elizabeth Valois too at one point, although um, the evidence there is a little bit murky. You know, how they handled it, I think they often had to suffer through it, depending on how old they were or, you know, uh, what their relative power position positions were. When Catherine first really experiences this anti-Italianism firsthand is when her husband's older brother, who was the heir to the throne, dies suddenly. And then there are some rumors that, you know, it was an Italian who killed the heir and, you know, it was an Italian who was in Catherine's entourage when she arrived in France and that maybe she is very ambitious you know, and at the time she's still she's still just a teen. And and my guess is that she was quite shocked by this because yeah. in fact she had received a relatively warm welcome in France before then. Mm. Yeah, definitely. That's that is portrayed in the the TV show The Serpent Queen. Oh yeah. Mary's heavily featured and obviously heavily featured in the TV show Rain. How useful do you think TV shows are? to portray how the women were in real life. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> you know, those shows in particular, I mm. actually, I, I haven't watched and I'll tell you why. I should, I should now that the book is out, I should watch them. But I didn't want anything to color my um, <laughs> yeah. sense of these women while I was writing them because I am very susceptible I will say I am very, <laughs> very susceptible to, to being imprinted by TV shows and movies. I love them. I, you know, and um, watch a fair bit, especially film to kind of think a lot about story and how to, you know, a story unfold. But I, I am very influenced by the way people are portrayed in, in, that, in that kind of media. So I haven't watched them, but I have heard some things. So, you know, I, I, I'm actually a big fan of historical fiction and I would group shows like that as historical yeah, yeah. fiction because I do think it allows you to explore what was going on in their heads or what, you know, their character might've looked like, or it's a way of transporting ourselves and our modern sensibilities back in time. Um, And sometimes, you know, I do think that these shows get it right, but sometimes in terms of the facts or, well, yes, in terms of the facts, (laughs) they get it really wrong. And, And then it's a question of, you know, what we're trying to achieve with these shows. Are we trying to get people interested in the period? Are we trying to sell a good story. What worries me is when the shows try, you know, they seem to perpetuate a negative stereotype um, that's really harmful. It's it's sort of unjust, but it's also harmful, not only to the legacy of any particular woman, but Mm -hmm. also sort of the reception of women in power or, you know, women of a certain time. Yeah, no, definitely. Mary, Queen of Scots' mother, I always think she must have really suffered terribly given Mary back to France. Just how dangerous was Scotland for Mary at the time? Well, Scotland is very dangerous for Mary because of the English, right? At least Mary of Guise thought it was. Mm. I think Mary of Guise was really worried that the English who were waging war in Scotland, you know, the English had been trying to appropriate Scotland into Mm. Crown of England for generations, really. And, And I think that Mary of Guise was very concerned that 
young Mary would be kidnapped. Because Henry VIII, what Henry VIII, who started this whole thing, uh, wanted was for Mary to marry Edward, his son and heir. And then after Henry VIII dies, Edward takes over and he has the same goal. And Mary of Guise had no interest in (laughs) seeing that marriage go through, not only because she wants to preserve Scotland's sovereignty, but Mm. also because England is already Protestant. It's already broken with the Catholic Church and Mary of Guise is a very devout Catholic. And so that's why she sends Mary to France. Um, She basically, you know, swaps one kingdom for another. She decides that her daughter is not going to marry into England, but it would be okay if she married into France. You know, would Mary have been kidnapped? Were there attempts on her on her life or on kidnapping her? I I don't know, but Mary was definitely Mary of Guise was definitely concerned because, as you say, it was really probably an emotional struggle for her to send Mary to France. She had already lost several children. Um, she had already had to leave a child in France, a, another boy, an older boy. And so to send this last child away, not knowing when she would see her again, could only have been heartbreaking. Yeah, definitely. A prevalent theme throughout the book is family. I think now, especially with things things come out in the media about the Windsors, everybody kind of sees them as like the royal family as a working family they're not just uh, the, the type of typical family you have who is loving and supportive, but there was, even though they're royal families in the book, they're also loving and supportive to each other, whether it's the, the Valois or the, the Guise family as well. I was just actually so struck by how loving they were. I actually never thought that. It never comes across. The letters, Mary de Guise's mother, the letters. Yeah, Antoinette de Bourbon, yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, the letters yeah. she sends to her, it's just incredible. What, what do you think we can tell about family from their letters? So first of all, the Guise family, you know, I think that was one of their secrets is actually how much they love each other. Mm. Um, right. They they are one of the reasons they become so powerful is in part because they are fiercely loyal to each other. And it isn't just a sort of mental intellectual loyalty. It is yeah. coming from the heart. And I've often wondered if Catherine, uh, who, who knew the Guises quite well, wasn't sort of watching them and, and trying to emulate, trying to create the same dynamic in her own family. Yeah. So, you know, the Guises, yes, you know, they they operate, their, their machine, the great mm-hmm. Guise family machine <laughs> operates on love and affection. So those letters, you know, in, in encouraging those ties are hugely important. And as you say, Mary of Guise, her mother, Antoinette de Bourbon, was a great letter writer. And in some ways, I, you know, we think of the Guises, we, we think of the Duke of Guise, and then we also think of Claude de Guise, their father. We, we kind of think of it in terms of, you know, patriarchy. But in some ways, I think it, I like to think of the Guises as a kind of a matriarchy, yeah, starting definitely. with Antoinette de Bourbon, right? Like that she seemed to be the one who was in some ways was really in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly kind of knew how to bring new family members in like the wives and kind of teach them what it was going to mean to be mm-hmm. a Guise. Mm-hmm. So she, you know, create, she, she continues to have this very close relationship with Mary of Guise once Mary goes to Scotland. And that is one reason why Mary of Guise feels fairly confident sending Mary back to France, because she knows her mother, Antoinette de Bourbon, and the other Guise relatives will be looking after Mary. It's, it's a little different, but in some ways, the same dynamic between Catherine and Elizabeth de Valois when Elizabeth marries at the age of 13 and goes to Spain, you know, Elizabeth, uh, Catherine starts writing letters right away. 
it's very clear that Catherine loved Elizabeth and that she was rather distraught at the idea of having to send her to Spain, especially given the timing, right? Her husband, Henry II, has just died in this terrible jousting accident. And Elizabeth is very young and this new alliance with Spain seems so fraught. And, and so you can, you can kind of feel Catherine's ambivalence about sending Elizabeth to Spain. So right away, she starts writing. And, you know, I think that her letters do several things. On the on the one hand, you know, she wants to remain close to her daughter. She loved Elizabeth. And so, you know, they're using the correspondence to stay close to each other. Elizabeth was also homesick, you know, so she wrote letters back home and, and really was anxious to hear, hear from France. The other thing that Catherine does with her letters is she helping Elizabeth understand how to navigate this new Spanish court. But then... Catherine, the letters start to slide into something else as the political situation between France and Spain becomes a little more fraught. They start to become a little bit more or a lot more politically tinged and a little bit controlling. I think that one thing that happens is that Catherine uses her love for Elizabeth and Elizabeth's love in return as a way to get Elizabeth to do, to behave in certain political ways that were Mm. expedient and useful for France. So love, again, becomes kind of a political currency, and the letters foster that. I love how you can see almost the kind of loyalty switch from France to Spain in the letter, kind of going back as well. You can almost see, okay, mother, I love you, but now I have a husband and we have kids, so... Well, and if if you think about it, too, she's an adolescent, right? (laughs) Right. In some ways, it is a very appropriate teenage (laughs) reaction to kind of push away. But again, also, you know, even if if you think in terms of political expediency, what was the politically smart thing to do? For Elizabeth, the politically smart thing to do was to remain close or to get close to Philip II, right? And to become Mm. his loyal consort. That is her job. As as a queen. And in some, you know, at some point in her teens, she feels confident enough to be able to do that and say, like you said, no, mom, (laughs) (laughs) we're not going to do it your way. We're going to do it. We're going to do it our way, the Spanish way. Yeah, it's definitely a smart way to go because she has to live in Spain. Catherine doesn't. So she has to live with consequences. Yes, yes. And, you know, I I wonder about that, too. The thing about letter writing is that this is happening across, you know, hundreds and hundreds Mm -hmm. of miles. And, you know, Catherine never gets really any visibility other than through letters and reports into Spain. She's never really traveled there. And so it it must have been sort of easy to sit down and write a letter and tell your daughter what to do Mm. and kind of be a little disconnected, right, from the real world consequences of asking your daughter to, to, Mm -hmm. to do certain things. Yeah, definitely. I actually thought it was quite funny because, they, I mean, they talk about politics and there's that in the letters, but sometimes some of the letters are they're very modern and I, I could imagine myself having this conversation with my daughters, their styles and clothes and things like that. It's so modern when you think about it, that nothing yeah. has really changed. <laughs> Have yeah. you arrived yet? Have you arrived yet? <laughs> exactly. Text you land there. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and, and a lot of these these letters, these more sort of chummy or personal, intimate letters, you know, you'll find them kind of in the notes to to other letters, right? Even in edited editions, because they weren't seen as politically important. So sometimes they'll be footnoted, Yeah, (laughs) you know, and then you have to hunt them down. 
But right. And, and Catherine was definitely a hovering mom. You know, <laughs> she wanted to know everything. And she had very, very definite ideas about how to do things, what you should eat, what you should wear, you know, how you should control your ladies. Um, and, and she was not shy about offering those opinions. She's a cool mom. Uh, overbearing. She's a regular really. mom. She's a regal mom. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, there's a lot riding on it. You know, you have to forgive yeah. Catherine, I think, because yeah. there's so much riding on it. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Mary, Queen of Scots, was the legitimate heir to the English throne at the time. Mary the First and Elizabeth I were already declared illegitimate. Edward was seen as illegitimate by a lot of people because his parents were only married in the Church of England, which to some people they thought, was just a figment of Henry's imagination. They didn't see it as a real thing. How important was this marriage to Henry's uh, Henry II, sorry, uh, his idea of empire? The fact that she was a Scottish queen and potentially an English one? This is hugely important. Uh, it's one of the reasons why he was so receptive to Mary of Guise sending Mary, Queen of Scots, to France. You know, I, I think that Henry II, oh, there's always a backstory to every story, right? So Henry II did not get along with his dad. <laughs> Francis I no, he did not get along with his father. And he was very much in his dad's shadow. And I think that that he struggled for many years psychologically to try to, he wanted to best his dad. He, he mm. wanted to be equal or superior to his father. That is one, you know, thread in Henry's aspirations. The other is that he never gets over his terrible relationship with Spain, certainly with Charles V, because when Henry was a little boy, I, I can I can never get over it. Age seven, he was sent as a political prisoner in his father's place to Spain. His father mm. had been captured after the Battle of Pavia and was a political prisoner in Spain for a year. And then his health was very poor. France was desperate to get him back. And so they made a trade. They decided to send the two princes, Henry and his older brother, and these are just little boys, to Spain where they are for three years. So there's a lot of thought that that imprisonment when he was so young is one of the reasons why Henry never gets along with his dad. He can never quite, you know, square the fact that his father left him in that Spanish prison for, for three years. So for all, all sorts of reasons, Henry has this view of empire. He wants to best his own father and he definitely wants to best Charles V. So he has this vision of, you know, what the French empire could look like. He imagines that it could, you know, spread over to the continent to like all the lands that Charlemagne <laughs> uh, used to rule over. And also he's thinking, you know, it could it could go into England. Scotland is already allied with France because of the old alliance that had relatively recently been renewed, but it, but it's... You know, there's precedent and, and it's going strong. And he sees Mary, Queen of Scots as kind of an opening. Henry feels that he probably could find a way to push Mary, Queen of Scots and more importantly, his own son, who he has already planned by the time Mary gets to Scotland. He's already planned their wedding. His idea is he's going to push Mary, Queen of Scots onto the throne of England. And through her, it's really going to be his son who's going to rule as the King of England. He's always thinking of her as a pawn. She's a yeah. sovereign queen that's very useful, but he's not really thinking of her as 
as a sovereign, the way he would think of his own son mm. as being the ultimate, you know, sovereign to rule over Scotland, France, England. Yeah, definitely. I actually thought, although your book is about women, I thought you you wrote really empathetically and thoughtfully about the men, which I've never seen in books about them or ones that they've been in, because you talk about Henry's trauma and then you talk about the love that he had for his own children how he was devastated when they died, how he w- he went and visited them more often than you would maybe say other royal families did. Um, when it came to Philip, you talked about the trauma he had around childbirth deaths. And we never think about that. We never think about, we always talk about how hard it was for the women. Like they were the sole victim, obviously they were they died but the men got left behind that must have been really traumatic for them was that something you thought about or just came naturally uh, you know i i was just very interested in in character yeah right like what makes them do what they do mm. and i think i got interested in the men and particularly the boys well let me first say that we do have more documentation of boys than we do girls mm. so in some ways i i came to the boys because i was trying to envision children Right. Like, what was it like to be a child at this time, whether you were a boy or a girl? And there were certain stories that really just stuck with me. One is, you know, Henry II's trauma as a little boy in this prison. And the other one was Mary of Guise's son left behind in France, you know, and how much he missed his mother. And we have those letters. And so, you know, I I was I was sort of seeing the boys allowed me to also imagine what it was like for the girls. Just just this, you know, not that their traumas or their their suffering was the same, but that mm-hmm. children were living these kinds of lives, right? Mm-hmm. That aspects of dynastic marriage, you know, affected all of them, the boys as well as the girls to a certain degree. And, you know, my goal was to try to paint a picture of what that looked like. But, you know, once I got really into thinking about character, then these little anecdotes start popping up, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So the one that I absolutely love of Henry II is that for whatever reason, he was really attached to Elizabeth's younger sister, Claude, the little girl who came after her. He was really attached to her and he he didn't really want her to go to the nursery. And so he delayed <laughs> sending her to the nursery. And it's really interesting because Claude is his mother's name. Yeah. And he lost nervous. Yes, he lost his mother when when he was five. He was very close to her. And also that seems to have been quite traumatic. Mm. And 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 then this little baby is is named Claude. So there are a lot of these these little anecdotes for Philip II too. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think that when you when you see these sort of more intimate personal details, it at least for me, it, it helps explain why they make certain choices. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really interesting. I think this this is just my personal opinion. I'm not trying to be sexist, but I think there's something to be said about when women write history, we we do look at things like that more than men who maybe focus more on wars and their achievements and stuff. When a woman's reading, uh, writing or, or reading about anybody's history, we want to know the humanity parts of the character we're talking about or reading about or whatever. And you're a mother, obviously. So I think when I'm reading things about children, I always picture my own children. For sure. And, you know, where I really saw this was in the little letters that Francis um, de Longueville wrote to his mother, Mary of Guise. And the book is a bit long. And I was a little worried at some point that the editors were going to ask me to cut that part. (laughs) 
I thought, no, I will die on this hill. (laughs) We have to keep these letters. Mm. No, they never even brought it up. So, you know, this was my own little worry because he's a little bit adjacent to the story, right? Mm. But those letters where he's describing, you know, what he ate and, and even the cadence, you know, he's dictating these letters. And I could just imagine a little boy about five, six or seven, you know, the sort of stream of conscious thing of look what I did for my day, mom, you know, what do I have to tell you? And so he talks about all sorts of things, some of which, you know, don't really make a lot of sense. <laughs> but some things that are so cute, including, well, his uncle, who's actually a little bit younger than him, you know, he's kind of a bully. <laughs> He's picking on him about the toys. And this seems to be a longstanding problem that Francois de Longueville has to deal with, you know. So again, you said earlier that some things never change. And I I do think that the way children are, Mm. you know, kind of how they go through their world, how they walk through their world probably hasn't changed that much even in 500 years. So I I wanted to kind of remind readers that that's what we're dealing with. You know, we're dealing with very young girls who are still basically children when they go off and get married, but we're dealing with a lot of children who feel the pain of being separated from their parents or having a parent die and who must have often been confused about the circumstance that they found themselves in. Yeah, definitely. Because I mean, we live in a world where we talk about death a lot and we are aware of mental health and how it can affect children and stuff. And you just you just wonder how they managed without all that knowledge and support, and they had so much more death around them. It's a constant PTSD, but they didn't yeah. know what PTSD was or how to deal no. with it, or the fact that they have to deal with it. So no. it was just permanent, I suppose. Mm. Well, they have religion, mm. right? Perhaps that's one explanation of why the wars of religion are so traumatic, right? And, yes. You know, that this sort of um, fracturing of the church, because it was a bedrock for people, you know, mm. when there is so much loss and so much pain, you need your notions of God to stay stable. You know, mm. when you're going to another kingdom to be married at the age of 13, it was probably very comforting to you know, go through the same religious rituals that Mm -hmm. were familiar from your own kingdom. So I think, you know, on a very, very human and personal level, this fracturing of the church is very impactful. That's so true, because we just can't comprehend how hard that was for them back then, because it was all consuming and there was no questioning of it. That was God and that's it. And then all of a sudden, no, you're not doing things right. You're not saying things right. God is God's completely different and changing things. It, mu- it must have been really life shattering for people. Yeah, well, we think about a lot about identity, right? So yeah. on some level, just, you know, really, it probably structured the core of one's sense of identity. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Ironically, Mary Queen of Scots is remembered as being a Catholic martyr, the most famous Scottish, she is the most famous Scottish monarch. If you don't know anything about Scottish history, you know who Mary Queen of Scots is. She's seen as a victim of English violence and aggression. That's definitely true. I would kind of argue that she was not the worst Scottish monarch, but she didn't actually have that much care for the Scottish people or the Scottish land. And that is evident when she gets married. Can you tell us about what happened? The letters she signs on her marriage to Francis, where she signs over Scotland. There's three marriages, right? She's yes. halfway to Henry VIII, you know, three more yeah, and she would yes. have had the same record. Yes, so. first marriage. Sometimes you can forget about Francis. 
I agree with you. I mean, you know, there's that wonderful biography by Jenny Wormald about Mary Queen of Scots, you know, being a reluctant ruler. And I just love that biography. Um, And I kind of agree. I think I'm a little bit more sympathetic to why Mary might have been a reluctant ruler. Yeah. Um, But I agree that she's a reluctant ruler. What happens, so first I'll talk about what happens and then I'll talk about why. So what happens is that he is requested or asked to sign these documents that uh, it's behind the backs of the Scottish nobles. The Scottish nobles don't know this is happening. And under the watch of Henry II, her father-in-law, and her Guise uncles, and her husband Francis, she signs three documents that are more or less signing away her own sovereignty over Scotland and Scottish sovereignty over Scotland to France. Henry II was basically creating a paper trail so that if something happened to Mary, namely that she would die, because people did, that her husband... Francis II, the French, you know, the French prince, Francis II, would be able to remain effectively king of Scotland and then pass Scotland on to his own heirs. You know, Mary seems to do this very blithely, very, with no question, or at least we have no documentation about whether she asked any questions about this or thought twice about doing this. So here's where I get to the why. So Mary, you know, she's the sovereign queen of Scotland when she comes to France, but in many ways, she's really raised to be the French queen consort. And this is where Mary is, you could you could say that she's slightly, she's the victim of the Guise family. Mm-hmm. So the Guise family don't seem, well, if, if, if we're going to uh, be kind of severe about it, the Guise see the crown of Scotland as an asset, right? It's like one of Mary's assets. It's what she brings to the French crown. And the Guises are very interested in advancing their own career in France, and they're going to use Mary to do it. Hmm. So the way they hoped to get close to Henry II and become more important political players at the French court is, you know, by orchestrating this marriage between Mary, Queen of Scots, and Francis II, thereby bringing the crown of Scotland to the French crown. So that's how they're seeing that their relationship to Scotland. And so from the time that Mary gets to France, the Guises and Henry II and and Catherine, everybody is raising her to be the future queen consort of France. That is seen as a more important kingdom than Scotland. And certainly if you're aspirational or ambitious at all, that's kind of where you want to be. I mean, I think that Mary, certainly when she was young, was that's what she had her her sight set on. You know, she was already a sovereign queen of Scotland, but what would be really great would be to be the queen consort of France. And then she eventually gets there. She's raised to put France first. And she's also raised to be a very trusting and obedient member of the Guise family. So when the Guises say, there are these three documents, please sign them. <laughs> She doesn't question it. She just does it. Mm. And of course, at the time, she's, you know, 16 years old, Mm. right? 15? 15. And so, again, we're not talking about a fully developed woman here. We're talking about someone who's essentially a child. She just doesn't seem to have Scotland's best interests at heart all the way through her life. It was just her dowry. It was just a dowry. You know, some people have a flock of sheep, a castle. She had a country, you know. She had a country and she had a crown and she could use it. Mm. I I agree with you. And, you know, I think that the death of Francis II was very traumatic for her. Mm. I think she expected to get married again. You know, she had always been desirable. So she thought, I think she thought it was going to be easy. 
you know, she was going to marry some other prince, you know, European prince uh, or even possibly a king. Mm. So she goes back to Scotland and it seems to me that, you know, for several years on, really, you know, until she marries Darnley, she's trying to get back to France in some, you know, in some way or another. Even if she can't get back physically, she's trying to get back to kind of the mental place that she was at during her childhood in France. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can kind of understand it. Sometimes I think it's helpful to be a little bit anachronistic in our thinking, just to try to imagine where these people are coming from. So, you know, we all have nostalgia for our childhood, you know, mm-hmm. often, you know, you see things through rose-colored glasses, but you remember how easy certain things were mm-hmm. when you were a child. And Mary had an idyllic childhood in France you know, where she could almost do no wrong. And so I can't really blame her, at least, you know, as an 18, 19, 20 year old for kind of wanting to get back there. It was, it was where she shone. Oh, definitely. I just think it's, I just think it's crazy how she is the most famous Scottish person. So why do you think she's the most famous? Just because her story is so... I think, I think her story, definitely. I think, I think if she had ruled... And then it had passed on to James and Elizabeth hadn't done what Elizabeth done. I think her martyrdom has made her special, definitely. Mm-hmm. You, you don't have many mm-hmm. queens that have been martyred like her. Right, yeah. What do you think, Natalie? I agree because you and I both lived in Scotland. You still do. You never left them. <laughs> she's very famous and she's kind of seen the title. And then if you ask sort of most people, most non-history mm-hmm. people to name kings and queens, they will probably go Mary Queen of Scots if you ask them to name anyone else. Maybe Robert the Bruce will come up. Mm-hmm. Maybe, probably mm-hmm. not. But mm-hmm. I think she's kind of a rock star of that history, yeah. even though, like I said, ironically, she's the one who kind of probably didn't do as much as some other kings before her, Robert the Bruce included. But yeah. Yeah. In Mary's defense, <laughs> if we can defend her, I, I don't think she was prepared. I mean, she mm. wasn't taught how to rule. Not that, she, not that she wasn't educated. I know she was very educated, but I think her story just highlights how important it is for women to be prepared for power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As you say, she wasn't. No. And both Catherine de' Medici and Elizabeth Tudor, right, mm-hmm. who's often contrasted with Mary Queen of Scots, had these sort of long apprenticeship periods, not officially, but, you know, they had difficult childhoods. So yeah. they had to kind of learn how to navigate that. And then Elizabeth kind of, she could watch her older sister, mm-hmm. you know, and see what not to do. <laughs> <laughs> take notes, take notes. Okay, not to do, yes. do that. Not to do that. Yeah, don't yes. do that. Don't do that. Yeah. And she did make some, some mistakes when she was young, but also, you know, the kingdom was on her side, you know. There were a few years that she had, she had like this uh, sort of grace period, I think. And then Catherine was a queen concert for a very long time, Mm -hmm. you know, until she was 40. So, you know, she had much more time to rule. Mary was thrown into it and it was not, Scotland was not a peaceful place, right? It was, it was not, it would not have been easy for any monarch, you know, in fairness. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, you know, she's thrown into it when she's 18, so I don't know. Yeah, she has to be prepared. Yeah. But how prepared? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No. But Maybe I'm, I'm it's just, just such an unfortunate life. I think it's a shame because Mary de Guise done quite a good job. It's not even yeah. her country. But she was older. Mm. She's a little bit, I mean, I think queen mothers have a kind of interesting role. Yeah. 
because they, they're kind of behind the scenes. They can be a little slippery, (laughs) you know, uh, they can pull back if they want to. You definitely see that with Catherine a lot. Whereas Mary, she's like, as the sovereign queen, she is really front and center. Mm, What light. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's true. When Mary and Elizabeth both left France, they were queens and Catherine was now a, a queen mother. Did that shift in power translate to their relationship with each other? Yes. I've thought a lot about the fact that Henry II's death is really kind of the turning point where everything shifts for them. Over the next two years is when they'll end up in three separate kingdoms. But politics on a number of fronts seemed to snowball after Henry II's death. Uh, He was barely keeping it together. I mean, it's unclear if he had lived, whether civil war in France would have erupted erupted anyways. At least at the time that he was reigning, France was still, in theory, you know, unified, um, although there was a lot of tension. And then there's this new, very fragile alliance with Spain, which threatens to be undercut, you know, sort of at every turn. And so different loyalties and alliances start to make themselves clear once these women move to different kingdoms. And for Catherine, it seems, you know, blood is thicker than water. Right. Mm. So her relationship with Elizabeth de Valois, her her biological daughter, was going to take precedence over any kind of attachment or loyalty or even affection that she had you know, ever felt for Mary, Queen of Scots. And Mary herself, you know, creates a lot of political problems. <laughs> she creates a lot of political problems, especially when she starts to look more closely at, at, at trying to find a way to acquire the English succession. Mm. Catherine is not happy about that at all because Scotland has always been allied to France. So she doesn't trust, she doesn't understand why Mary is doing this, or she understands perfectly well, but she doesn't like it. You know, Mary is thinking about her own interests in acquiring that English succession. She's not thinking about any kind of loyalty or that, that she should have to France or to the old alliance. You know, there are no, on a number of different levels, you see a lot of fraying. You see a fraying in the politics. You see fraying in any sort of affectionate uh, connections of affection. And you start to see that in the end, certainly Catherine and Elizabeth are going to privilege, you know, blood bonds over any kind of other bonds that might have been fostered earlier in France. Well, I thought it was quite sad because Catherine said, I think she says to Mary's mother at one point that, she would be a solace in old age. I just love uh, that. And then you see where they ended up. It, it's really... Uh, I know, I know. I mean, I, I really think, you know, Catherine had a lot of empathy for Mary of Guise when Mary sends, you know, the little Mary over to France. The letter she writes to Mary of Guise is, is a beautiful letter, uh, just so full of emotion. And yes, she says that, you know, this, this little girl is going to be the solace of my old age. You know, she had sort of imagined this idea that she'll be <laughs> she'll be an old woman and Mary will be her daughter-in-law and that Mary mm. would probably stay in France whereas the other daughters would go. But yes, it's not to be and and, and in some ways there you really see how well, let's see I have to say this right. You know, the tragedy is always looking backwards, you know. Yeah. You, you see yeah. kind of what they hoped it would be, <laughs> what they thought maybe it would become, both mm-hmm. in relationships and also the situation in France, the situation in Scotland, and then of course what happens and and that's how we end up with this sort of sense of tragedy around the whole story. Yeah. Yeah, because she, she did she put a lot of time and effort and love into Mary's upbringing. I always feel like it must have been, when Frances died, it must have been like losing two children in a way for her because she knew that Mary was going to leave. 
Yes. Although, you know, there's, there seems to be some fraying in their relationship even before that. You know, Mary is definitely a geese and Catherine didn't really love the way that the geeses took control when Francis II acceded to the throne. You know, they are Catholic hardliners. Catherine believes in, you know, sort of much more toleration between yeah. the two religious groups. So you, you kind of get a sense that she was sort of happy to see Mary go, you know, mm-hmm. because she was causing problems. But that's at least what she says in a letter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you can never really know how, how they feel. But at that moment, you know, Catherine is really stressed and she's very much um, looking out for her own children. Mm-hmm. So that would have taken a priority. Yeah. What kind of relationship did Philip and Elizabeth have? Because I'm always struck by, over here anyway, I, I don't know what it's like elsewhere, but over here, we know Philip II through Mary Tudor and he does not have a good reputation. He was but, a bad husband to her. He was well, not a good husband. Awful. He was, he was awful. Yeah. But at least at the beginning... With Elizabeth, he seems really paternal. Is that her age or was it? Yeah, paternal and distant, I would mm. say, you know, at the beginning. Mm. It, it, it was a little rocky in the beginning with Elizabeth. She was clearly having a, a hard time developing anything like a, a, an affectionate relationship. He was very respectful, mm. but he, he wasn't letting her in, you no. know, mm. uh, emotionally or politically. So she spends a lot of time with his younger sister, Juana. <laughs> And they actually developed this lovely uh, relationship. And I've often wondered, because eventually Philip's relationship with Elizabeth gets quite good, if, if Juana was sort of instrumental to that, you know, if somehow yeah. Juana made that happen. Slowly but surely, she, you know, wins Philip over. I wonder if what we were talking about earlier, the fact that she kind of pushes her mother mm-hmm. away at some point, allow her to kind of break down <laughs> Philip's yeah. resistance a little bit. Now, the one thing that's sort of threatening to Elizabeth is the fact that she does struggle with fertility for several years. She does finally get pregnant in a way that they can announce the pregnancy. She loses that baby, but Philip is still very hopeful and optimistic because it means that she can get pregnant. Yeah. That to me suggests that he was already, if not totally smitten, he at least was already feeling a fair bit of affection for her because he wants this to work, right? He's willing to keep her on and he wants this to work. And then eventually, yes, I they develop a very, very good relationship. They go on picnics. <laughs> they take rides together. They share meals together. And then, you know, she does have these two daughters. Unfortunately, she never she never bears the the son that Philip really mm-hmm. wants. But um, Philip is a very attentive husband. Uh, especially Elizabeth is often ill. So during her illnesses, also during childbirth, he's there mm-hmm. with her. And then uh, he absolutely loves those daughters. Uh, the, the daughters that he had by Elizabeth, he is very, very close to. Uh, there's still a lot of letters that we have. He he really cherishes them. And I think that's very much, you know, kind of speaks to how he felt about their mother. Yeah, yeah definitely. I must say, um, I absolutely love the way you kind of yeah wrote that. And the latter part of the relationship, I always saw it as a little kind of a film with the kind of romantic longing when she's coming back from the meeting with her mother at the in the secret uh, secret meeting that they had that no one knows what it's about. And then he's just worried how she's going to come back. And then she's hurrying back and they have this notebooky sort of romantic yes. kind of encounter. Yeah. That's that's the way I kind of read it. I was like, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> They're together yeah, finally. Like, did it oh right and then he writes this letter that's just full of praise for look what my wife did yeah and then she gets pregnant right right after or something yes 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 yes, she does 
So yeah, it ended, and I think that actually it speaks to Elizabeth's skill, right? Mm-hmm. As a concert, a kind of quiet skill that isn't perhaps very well documented, mm-hmm. but that somehow she knew how to navigate that, right? Between this overbearing mother yeah. and this Philip, you know, who's who's <laughs> 20 years older than her and not necessarily inclined, you know, to be uh, an affectionate spouse. Somehow she figured out how to do that. And that is a skill, one that she cultivated. It's almost like on paper, it looks like Catherine and Mary with their first marriages, they had it good. They had young uh, husbands that were the same age, which is a big deal. Elizabeth is going to a completely foreign country, who, but she doesn't know MD. At least Mary had the Gizzi, she had family around her. Catherine had family in France. She's going to, to her father's enemy, basically. And she's getting this husband who's 20 odd year older who was horrible to his two first wives. She must have heard right. stories. And yet they had a love story. Yeah. That's very sweet. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it is very sweet. And it's also, I would say, it's a love story, but it's also very political. That is Elizabeth doing her job as a queen consort. Yeah. And you don't expect that from somebody who's 13. No. no well, and she had to learn, but yeah. she did learn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she learned. <laughs> What do you think all three of the Queen's legacies are as a group and individually? Oh, hard question. You could write a whole other book about that, actually. (laughs) So sequel. Please, please write the sequel. (laughs) So let's start with as a group. Mm. You know, I I kind of, I like starting there because originally this book was not going to be about three queens. It was going to be just about Elizabeth de Valois. And then it was going to be about her relationship with her mother. Mm. And then it, it expanded. I started to realize, you know, once it became clear that Mary Queen of Scots had to come on board, that that was the only way to write the story because there is a there is a clear network here, you know, mm-hmm. like in the letters, in the evidence you have, it's, it's constant going back and forth between the three of them, one way or the other, you know, that relationship, you know, whether it's a mother daughter relationship or the trio or the mother daughter in law a really important unit to look at because that's how women engaged in politics at the time in this very kind of networky, sort of behind the scenes sort of way. So if we're going to talk about women's history, we kind of have to look at these relationships. I think there's it's important to kind of look at these sort of broader networks specific to women's history because that's yeah. how women's history, you know, or women in power often worked. Individually, their legacies. Well, for each one. So, you know, the first thing I would say for all of them is complexity, right? (laughs) To kind of move past sort of the simplified portraits that we've often, that have come down to us. Mm -hmm. So for Catherine, you know, I always say she had so much grit. She was such a survivor, which is a very positive view of Catherine, Mm -hmm. you know, compared to the Serpent Queen (laughs) or the, the Black Queen, but she really was. And if there hadn't been a regime change, by that, I mean, a change in dynasty, you know, if there hadn't been the horrible political situation that dominated in France in the 16th century, maybe we really would have appreciated her leadership instead of, you know, denigrating it. So so I would see Catherine as a survivor. For Elizabeth, I see Elizabeth as almost an, an aristocratic every woman. By that, I mean, there is something in her story that captures something essential about what it was like to be young and royal in the Renaissance. Elizabeth's body, whether it works or it doesn't work, whether it can, whether it's sick or it's healthy, if she can produce a child or not, is so important 
politically. And that was actually true of every royal woman and every aristocratic woman. You know, in some ways, Elizabeth shows us how much being a queen is an embodied experience. So I think that we can kind of take her as representative of broader female experience at the time. And um, for Mary, well, the subtitle of my book is The Price of Power, <laughs> like the cost of power, and they all pay it in, yeah. in, in different ways. But with Mary, you, you really see, you know, you really see how in some ways there's no win- winning as a young female queen. Yeah. You know, she even she even does it. She has the baby boy. She has she bears the heir to the throne. And that's actually used to depose her, you know, by her enemies. So even when she's doing her job, she actually creates, you know, the scenario that will bring about her downfall. I guess I do see Mary as a bit of a tragic figure. And I know that's not always popular. We want to see these women as savvy or important political players. And they, and they were. But in, in some ways, particularly with Mary, I, I see, you know, the ways in which she's just crushed. And, and there's no path that she could have chosen that would have turned out OK because she's female, because she's a queen. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I know I gave her a bit of a knocking earlier on. Well, yes, she does make some bad choices. She does. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't dislike her. And I think we've talked about this loads of times on the podcast, how I, I particularly do not like saying people were evil or really good or saintly. We're all just human. We have feelings. Yep. And the world around her just worked against her. I don't think mm-hmm. she, she was a particularly bad monarch out of her own will. Do you know what I mean? Like she didn't mean to be a bad monarch. She's not just, malicious. No, no she's yes. not malicious in any way. Absolutely yeah. not. Right. No, no, I don't think. I don't know her, obviously. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. She was caught in a way where her vulnerabilities were amplified. Yeah. And, you know, at the time, you're vulnerable if you're a child monarch and you're vulnerable if you're a female monarch, for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, and, and, I, and I think that Mary's story really, really shows that. Mm-hmm. But yeah. she's powerless, right? She's yeah. in, in theory, she's supposed to be so powerful, but in fact, in many ways, she's powerless. Yeah, kind of, kind of struck me, especially reading your book when she goes against Catherine before she comes back, and she's she looks down on Catherine. That's typical teenage girl behaviour, isn't it? Really, I mean, there's just nothing in that. <laughs> it reminds me of you know celebrities nowadays who never get told no. And she's a queen. Who's going to tell her what to do? She's a queen in her own right. And I wonder if that was maybe nurtured into her personality and it was a bit of a downfall for her. I think so. I mean, I think earlier I talked about how both Catherine and Elizabeth Tudor had very difficult childhoods Mm -hmm. and it actually made them savvier. And and I think that Mary has this very coddled childhood. So she doesn't learn resilience because she never has to be resilient in her childhood. So, yeah. And I, and I think she definitely did not understand. No, Um, she, she, she definitely did not understand why she couldn't just have her way. Mm. It's actually a very simplified view of of monarchy. Yeah, the single child syndrome sometimes. <laughs> All of my parents love. Yeah, no. yeah. Or queen sovereign queen syndrome maybe. Did you at any point have a temptation to add Elizabeth I, Elizabeth Tudor into the mix? Because I was thinking when I was reading, thinking that she's always kind of almost there. And you could say it's about the four of them because technically Catherine and Elizabeth Tudor had a sort of connection. 
Elizabeth and Mary Queen of Scots definitely had a connection and it's lots of films about it. And then Elizabeth de Valois was also named after Elizabeth I, so they also could have been a connection. Did you have that temptation at all at any point? The first draft of the manuscript had Elizabeth Tudor as the fourth queen. Oh yeah, she was in there. Yeah. I promise you I haven't but. read it. So <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't read it. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, no, she, right, right. So, so what you're seeing in the book is sort of the distillation of a yeah. lot of research on Elizabeth I. Yes, I was very struck by that coincidence that Elizabeth de Valois was named after Elizabeth Tudor. You know, one of the very early iterations when I was first just conceptualizing the book was the way the two Elizabeths kind of go in different ways. One becomes a sovereign queen and one's a queen consort. And they, they kind of have this connection. The thing is, is that with four queens, the book just was starting to spin out of control. And there was so much ground to cover in terms of what even just happened, you know, without kind of digging a little bit more deeply into character And so it was becoming totally unruly. You know, we kind of made an editorial choice to to remove her or demote her. Supporting cast. So I ended up, yeah, so I ended up rewriting the second half of the book. And and in some ways, it, it actually makes perfect sense because Catherine, Elizabeth and Mary, you know, they really are a unit. They start in France. They think of themselves as French. And one of the themes in the book is about how that French alliance or that French sense of self gets tested you know, it gets cultivated and gets tested and, and its relationship to family alliance as well. So and in that, Elizabeth Tudor didn't really play a part. Elizabeth Tudor is so fascinating in terms of trying to understand what it's like to be female and young and royal, you know. And the, and the price and, and power, because she kind of, and the you, you could, of yeah, could say a lot about that. Couldn't you? Yes, yeah. for sure. You know, all, uh, uh, you know, down the line. But in, in terms of this, some of the other themes, she was less integral a book can only have so many themes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we decided to kind of, to kind of demote her. But she is. She's the unofficial fourth queen. There are actually a lot of queens in this book, right? Yeah. There's also, yeah. you know, many, Juana many. and there's Mary of Guise. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think I actually love that because you have so many books about Elizabeth Tudor. And I think it probably would have been easier choice to keep her in and remove, say, Elizabeth de Valois, even though the book was mm-hmm. originally about her. But I think it was I absolutely applaud that choice to cut out Elizabeth Tudor and keep the other ones because the Elizabeth de Valois, she doesn't get any spotlight in the popular history at mm-hmm. all, whereas Elizabeth Tudor gets everything. Yes. Yeah. And, and I, and I think, and, and that's spotlight. another reason why, you know, I, 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 w- I was never going to let Elizabeth Valois go. And, and when I talk about Elizabeth Valois as being sort of this, um, every woman, I think that's important. You know, mm-hmm. Catherine, Mary and Elizabeth Tudor, they kind of live these lives that men would live, right? They're, they're yeah. kind of put in these positions of power that are normally occupied by men. But Elizabeth Valois story is what most women, well, not most women, but certainly, you know, royal women. Yeah. That's what their story was like. Not, not, you know, not these, not, yeah. you know, these reigning queens or mm. regents. There isn't necessarily, she doesn't have the same kind of adventurous life that maybe the others do. There's still a story there. And I felt like that story had to be told. Absolutely. Yeah. And bring it to the spotlight because we, I don't think in terms of films, we see her, I think, in Rain as a slightly evil daughter of Catherine that comes to French court, I think, in season two or three. I can't remember 
when you watch it, please let me know because I'm not going to rewatch that again ever. And she is called Lise. Yeah, I, thought was, I thought it was Claude that no, was in There's a Claude as well. She had many, but <laughs> <laughs> there was a Claude as well. But no, no, this one kind of Claude stays. But, yeah, Claude stays. Uh, I think in season three, there's a yeah, co- a daughter called Lise. So oh. she comes in oh. as the as the wife of a Spanish monarch, and she kind of wreaks havoc and becomes a bit of a villain or something. And I had oh, to no. kind of go <laughs> back into researching who who did who was this meant to be? Oh, okay, because oh. because in terms of films, I think that's it. But then you get her kind of in popular history as the woman who Philip the Spain jilted the jilted someone for. I can't remember who, but. That's, that's well, his son, Don Carlos, right? Like, oh, that's yeah. often the, the well, yeah. story that it was supposed to be Don Carlos who married um, her and Philip takes his place. Yeah. And usually, like in history, is what you see Elizabeth at her wedding because that's the, you know, the end of the Italian wars and the signing of the Treaty of Cateau Cambrésis. So politically, it's very important. And then you don't see her again until Bayonne, <laughs> you know, when she has this meeting with Catherine. And that's how she usually appears, you know, mm-hmm. just in those sort of two important diplomatic um, yeah. instances. Yeah. I think that's the problem with women's history. Like Women are so important in history, but we kind of get looked over. Like Being a mother is not enough, apparently, in history, when <laughs> it's everything in history. If we weren't <laughs> mothers... We would not be here. There's no history. There's no history. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. It's like, oh, she did was have children. Well, that's all she needed to do. And that's a big achievement, by the yes. way. Yeah. 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 So I think that, you know, kind of showing the nitty gritty details of Elizabeth's embodied life as queen, right? You know, details about her illnesses, about her pregnancies, her about menstruation. That's all part of the story. And even then, people, you know, recognize how politically important it was. And so we should bring it out. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Do you have a favorite out of the three of them? (laughs) 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 I get asked this question and, you know, I flip back and forth. It's probably not satisfying. You know, I am also a fan of Catherine de' Medici just because she's so tenacious. You know, I really admire that. I think I'm a fan, though, of Elizabeth de Valois because of that sort of quiet, her her sort of quiet skills, mm. you know, that she that she has, and because she was unknown, mm. right? And I and I wanted to bring her bring her out. So, and she really was the inspiration for this book. So, for those reasons, you know, I'm very very partial to her. Like on my business card, it's her portrait on my business card. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know I'm kind of because I got to know them because this was a very sort of character based history you know and I really spent time with the letters and tried to to the extent that I could walk in their shoes I like them all they're very different from each other and I have a lot of sympathy for them for each of them so that's not a very satisfying answer but that's the one I'm going to go with so not Mary Queen of Scots okay got it <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't rise to the top no she, she doesn't does not rise, rise to the, to the top, top. Okay. No, oh, she doesn't but, make the cut. But I do, I do, I do feel for her. Who's your favorite, Natalie? Ooh, I think I have to agree with Leia. Probably, yes, the two of them. <laughs> so not Mary, <laughs> but out of the two of them, actually, I would pick Elizabeth de Valois because, like we've been saying, she's kind of the unknown. She's the ingenue to the popular history, mm. and God, I hope it continues. And I think because. When I was reading it uh, back in the spring, when it 
when it came uh, came out on Kindle for the first time. I, I think I sort of binged those pages much faster because unlike Catherine and unlike Mary, whose biographies I'd read before or, you know, mm. I've, I've seen them, etc. With Elizabeth, I had no idea where it's going to go. I, I, unless you look in, you know, right. Wikipedia or something, but for for a quick answer. But that was, and what happened next? And then what happened? Oh my god, a meeting! And what was this guy? Oh my god! So it was a real kind of obviously the whole book is a page turner, but those ones were just <laughs> I couldn't kind of keep out of it. Yeah. So that's yeah. a bit of for me. Thank you. That's yeah. wonderful to hear. Do you have a favorite, Gemma? I think mine was Catherine, but as Natalie said, I didn't realize I knew Elizabeth through reading about Catherine so I knew mm-hmm. her story but I didn't really know her and I think mm-hmm. reading your book just it, it really it really did bring her out as a person on her own she wasn't just Catherine's daughter and I really did take a liking to her um, and her story a lot a lot of people are writing history about more women who have not really had a voice over the years and as somebody me and Natalie obviously in you of love history so I'm Scottish I have read more Mary Queen of Scots than I tend to like I think I don't like her because I've read so much about her it's been drummed it gets drummed into you at school do you know what I mean yeah yes yeah another Mary Queen of Scots book that's great (laughs) but it's great reading about people who have never had a voice before or or just footnotes in other people's lives yeah and especially also when you see how they connect to people you have heard of yeah 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 Yeah. I, I I'm always fascinated by that yeah, with Philip, for for instance, because I never kind of thought of them together. I just really, okay, she marries him. But now yeah. Philip in my head, I don't know why, but he was disappeared from the history in my head when he, when Mary, Mary, Mary the first dies. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of reappears at some point as the person after whom Philippines are named after. And that's kind of, you know, obviously the Spanish Armada, <laughs> the Armada obviously, yeah, yeah. <laughs> obviously Spanish Armada, but kind of the, the personal bits, you know, that way. And, and through this story, I kind of have a different side of Philip, a good husband, a romantic mm-hmm. partner almost. So, you know, yeah, it's, uh, you can see him through it as well. And Spain, of course. That's quite interesting because because like before that, I had no care for Philip, Philip whatsoever. He was just yeah, no. this villain in history. I think it's because you're obviously, well, obviously, I'm reading British history, so they're not going to big him up. He's not going to be this great guy. <laughs> but when you read his story about his life with Elizabeth, you're like, ah, oh, he's actually alright. He's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, it's, it's that good. complexity, right? Yeah. It's that complexity. Yeah. 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 He has a nice sense. He becomes human. Yes. Yeah. He does yes. become he's human. human. He's, yes. he's human. Yes. What lesson from history do you want people to learn? To pay more attention to the women. That's a good one. Um, what mystery would you like solved from history? I want to know about Don Carlos. He's in Young Queens as well. What happened to Don Carlos? What he suffered from? Was he this sociopathic type, you know, figure? Or was he just profoundly misunderstood? I, I, I wish I could get a better picture of what of what he was like. Don Carlos, again, is a little bit of a stock figure. But I, I wonder if, if we could go back and see him, how, how, how we as modern people with a different understanding of disability, how, how would we understand him? I feel very bad for Don Carlos, actually. Yeah. What is your favorite TV show or film around the women you write about? I am kind of a fan of the Tudors because... <laughs> Not the way they they talk about French history because they get a lot wrong. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I like the way that Mary Tudor is portrayed in the Tudors. So, you know, I think that that feels closer to me from a lot of things that I've studied. That portrait of Mary Tudor 
seems more on the mark than certainly what you see in Wolf Hall. Wolf Hall. Yeah. Which is, you know, kind of a more of a simpering sort of weak Mary. Um, That's not the Mary Tudor, you know, I know. So, you know, I was really struck when I first saw the Tudors by that depiction of Mary Tudor. And then um, and then when I started doing some more research into Mary Tudor, it it felt it felt very true to me. Hmm. Yeah. Have you seen Becoming Elizabeth by any chance? No, not yet. No. I think you may love it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to love it. Uh, I'm, I'm a big Mary Tudor fan, but um, I think she's been de- kind of like Catherine. She's been demonized over the years and she's been misunderstood and she's known for the bad bits in her life. You don't yeah. think about what she went through, um, all the tragedies, tragedies in her life. You just don't, nobody seems to remember that part. Yeah, they need a prequel to, to the usual to, to thing. kind of yeah, em- yeah. empathize with the child, right? The child went from being with the apple of her father's eye to being basically abandoned by him and separated from her mother, and her whole identity stripped away. My Trauma. favorite scene. Oh, 100%. Yeah. My favorite scene in the Tudors is where Henry visits Elizabeth. He's oh. walking away, and Mary's yeah. at the top, and he just turns around and looks at her. And it's, yeah. she just wells up and it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's heartbreaking. I think it's actually historically accurate. I think, I yeah. think it's happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 it's very, heart, yeah. very yeah, heartwarming. The just yeah. gets a lot wrong, but it gets a lot right too. Yeah, I think it does. Might have to go watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> Another excuse. <laughs> Another excuse. But I'm going to watch Becoming Elizabeth now. Where can people find you? Best place to start is probably my website, which is leahredmanchang.com. And then there are links there to social media. And I have a newsletter on Substack where I, it's called Close Reading. And I, I try to look at the little details, right? And connect them to maybe some bigger narratives or just talk about them and why they might be meaningful. Thank you so much. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, thank Leah. You. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of If It Ain't Baroque podcast. Please like, subscribe and share with your friends. Gemma and myself, you can find us on social media. The handle is at If It Ain't Baroque podcast on Instagram. And we have an account on the X of the Twitter where we are at Baroque podcast. And if you'd like to read our blog and find out more, please visit the website ifitaintbaroque.art. If you'd like to join me on one of my walking tours, and I have three at the moment, one about the medieval and Tudor monarchs, one about the Georgian and Windsor monarchs, and one about naughty London in Southwark, please join me. The website is reignoflondon.com and there will be links in the description of this episode. Thank you so much and see you next time.